Okay, real quick video. Just want to show you what uh, some people out of Cornerstone are doing in their neighborhood to be a part of the plan of God in Simi Valley, California. Uh, we're Lance and Lynn Nielsen. We've been married for about 10 years. We have three children, eight, five, and two. <laughs> eight, six, and two. Eight, six, and two. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> going to Cornerstone, you know, every weekend you go in and you see somebody going off to Papua New Guinea, you see people going to Africa, you see all these amazing people doing amazing things. And you sit there and you think, wow, that would be really cool to do something like that. But how do you make that happen? What do you do? Do you quit your jobs? Do you, you know, uproot your family? How do you handle that? When we started Cornerstone, um, we definitely saw preaching straight out of the Bible and how... Um, convicting that is just straight straight from the Word of God and I just know that every time we would leave Cornerstone we just felt like oh, I, I need to be a better Christian I need to be serving more and um, and I think that really probably the um, real turning point came at Backyard Bible Club instead of doing vacation Bible school at, at the church they uh, decided to reach out into the communities and have it at <clears throat> members homes and so we had the opportunity to host that here where we had 25 children in our backyard for a week. And um, it was great. We got to meet a lot of the families. It was very local. We had kids from the neighborhood come that were um, not church goers or believers. And so it was an opportunity to reach out to them and their families because they would come each day too. It really got us more community-minded. And we started realizing that... Um, there were so many opportunities right where we were as a family to serve. When Christ was here, that was his ministry, was to reach out to people and, and help them in any way that they needed it. And um, so we've just had more of a heart to do that lately. And We have a gentleman that lives next door who's 87, and he um, his health has been declining for quite some time. Uh, he has absolutely no family. Right before Christmas, he had fallen, we think he may have had a little mini stroke, and um, he was down. We found him down the next day. And um, for probably a solid two weeks, he yeah. needed to be cared for, um, not around the clock, but several times a day with food and um, just making sure he was bathing and getting to the restroom and walking. and Picking him up off the floor. Yeah, he fell several times. And, um, and that was a great opportunity, again, just to walk next door and help somebody by just bringing them food. We don't want this to be about us. We want this to be about serving um, so that people will see God, that it opens that door to it, when people ask us, why, why are you doing this? Our 87-year-old neighbor says, why are you doing this for me? I don't understand why you would do this for us. Um, and we tell them, because that's what God calls us to do. He wants us to take care of people who have needs. He took care of people who had needs. We know we're pleasing the Lord when we do it. I mean, how else do you get close to somebody unless you can help them? You know, just to go and talk to somebody and and tell them what's on your heart is great. But it's also, you know, if, if you can go and, and show them that you care for them enough to take your time, mm -hmm. your family's time away and, and um, serve them in some way. As I've grown as a Christian, I see how much the Lord has done for me. And I truly, in my heart, um, just want to give to other people because we have so much. He's blessed us so much. Sorry. Um, and I, really, truly, I just feel that way. I feel like we have so much to give to people that 
we don't need to keep it for ourselves. We can um, just, you know, hopefully help them to see God. If they can see something different in our family and that points them to the Lord, that's the greatest thing that we could hope for, really. And so I think that that's really truly our motivation. Amen. Well, we, uh, we've had a good couple days. Um, as you guys know, Jeff Vanderstelt's been here and uh, a guy that uh, also just resonates with the same heart as Jeff that, uh, that uh, is hopefully going to be a heart more and more of Cornerstone. He's a guy that uh, is doing a lot of what uh, is happening right here where we're kind of turning the church a little bit and, and asking our, our church to look differently at the gospel and how we play it out neighborhood by neighborhood. He's a guy also walking with his church through it down in San Diego, California. And so... Uh, would love to welcome right now just uh, David Fairchild and have him share with us. So thanks. Thanks, You guys doing well? Good. Our our church is too cool, so every time I ask that question, they're just like, I'm fine. So thank you for saying you're well. Um, Really blessed and encouraged to be here. It's been... uh, just amazing. I, I didn't know much about Cornerstone and what's going on here uh, until a group of you folks, I think about maybe 20 or 25, came down to a conference that we put on, we hosted, called Total Church. How many, how many of you are here tonight that were actually at that conference? Any of you? Um, okay, a couple. Uh, and just getting a chance to, to hear a little bit about what God was doing at, at Cornerstone and uh, getting some scope of what it seemed like uh, he was leading the church into and uh, was just shocking for us. Um, I, I sit on a board for a church planning organization called Acts 29, and um, I sit on the national board and the international board, so I get to do a lot of traveling, both in the States as well as outside of the States, and get to meet with church planners in the States that have big churches and medium churches, small churches, and as well as uh, around the world. And you just don't hear of a church of this size that's willing to risk it all for the cause of the gospel. I mean, I'm just being very frank and honest with you. I'm not one given to, I mean, you know, preach a hyperbole, but that's, you give me a mulligan on that, right? But like, normally I don't like to exaggerate what I'm experiencing. And I'll just tell you that this is unusual and it's amazing. And I don't know if, um, but I hope, I think you might have some grasp of what God is doing in your midst and just the beauty of it. And to be, uh, so sensitive to the gospel and to the spirits prompting to lead you in a direction where you're doing what this family is doing and you're asking fundamental questions of what it means to be a Christian that is so transformed and affected by the gospel that um, it is thrusting you into a community and that community is saying, how in the world do we give ourselves away so that the kingdom advances um, in our time? It's just not heard of in a church of this size. Um, that, let me be careful. I, what I don't mean is that big churches aren't concerned about that. But what I do mean is big churches have a tendency to be happy that they're big churches. And like the goal becomes like, let's get bigger, right? Like that's the answer. Like, like my waistline, let's just keep growing, right? Just, I'm going to start getting the Hagar's pretty soon. I've already committed to it. Um, and that's typically what churches do. So for a church like this, um, to actually begin to ask some profound questions and to be led in the way that you're being led by your leaders. I've had a chance to spend a couple of days with them, and I'm just just thankful. I, I say that to you, one, as just great encouragement to you. I know it's challenging. When we went through some uh, 
sort of some transformation a couple of years ago, and we're still going through it, we lost a lot of people. We lost about a third of our people. And it was tough because these are people that we loved. I mean, like, loved. You know, you just, they've, a lot of them were there from the very beginning of when we planted Kaleo, and uh, it was it's really tough to say goodbye to them. But uh, for the sake of the gospel, we were willing to look at each other and say, are we okay with this? And, of course, before it happens, you say, of course I'm okay for God's glory. And then when everybody's leaving, you're like, what are we doing, right? We're idiots. But, but for the sake of the gospel, uh, we were willing to risk it. And we're still risking it, and I'm still thankful. And I just... I just wanted to begin by just um, saying thank you for setting an example. I can't wait to, can, to go out and travel and speak and brag about you guys. That's what I'm excited about. So, My name is, as, uh, as my brother Todd said, my name's David Fairchild. I'm, a, I'm an elder at Kaleo. I'm one of the co-founders of Kaleo. I'm tell you a little bit about my story so you kind of understand who I am. It is sort of weird coming into a context where you really don't know the church. You know, it's like... Jeff has done such a good job the last few days. I don't know how much more I can add to that. Um, But uh, maybe telling you a little bit about me will give you some clue as to why I'm as nuts and crazy and passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. uh, I'm a husband of a wife named Grace who is the most beautiful woman in the world, and I will fight you for that. Um, She is amazing. I love this woman. She's, uh, She's older than me, which was good because I was very immature when I met her. And uh, she, my wife, um, before, before we met, um, years before we met, my wife was 19, and she had, uh, she had a, a son by the name of Michael. And when I came into the picture, Mike had just turned 12 years old. He just celebrated his 12th birthday. And I remember when Grace and I got to know each other, the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to meet her son, Michael, right? This infamous, infamous Michael that I only talked to on the phone, and he told me how he thinks Mac computers are superior to PCs. And, of course, I own a PC, so I was a little miffed, but... God gives grace. And so I, I wanted to meet him right away. And my wife and I, well, not my wife then, but my potential girlfriend at the time decided to go on a date. We went on one. We thought we liked each other. And so we talked for hours every night on the phone, getting to know each other's story. And then the next time I got together with her, I said, I want to meet your son. Of course, she was very cautious about that because I don't know if any of you are single moms, but you know, you don't want to just introduce your children to strange men. And, uh, so we went to a hockey game, and I talked to Michael more than I talked to Grace. Um, him and I just hit it off. I mean, he's just a great kid. And I remember when I, when I was uh, preparing to uh, ask uh, Grace to marry me, I went to her son, Michael, and I said, can I, can I marry your mom? I asked for his permission. And his response, of course, was, yeah, but when do I get to call you dad? So I was like, oh, dude, like, now, right? <laughs> now, right? Dad. And uh, so instantly, I was a papa of a 12-year-old boy. And uh, Michael is uh, just a great son. He's 25 now. He's much hairier than me. I'm convinced he's, I'm convinced he's Chewbacca line. And uh, it's like he, he grows these beards that start from like his forehead and go all the way down. And all you see is eyeballs and, and barely lips. That's it. Like I've got... I look like I've dipped my chin in ice cream. Like I don't, I don't grow facial hair. He's just a beastly, hairy, bigger man than I am. And he eats more food than I do. And he's, thank God, he just, he just graduated culinary school in San Diego. So now he can cook for us. But uh, then we had uh, about uh, three months after we, we got married, we got pregnant. And uh, we had Madison. She's now going to be 12 uh, this next month. And 
loves her brother and I love my family. I mean, I, I know like as a pastor, you're supposed to say that because it'd be pretty terrible to get up and go, my family sucks. But like I do, I, I, re- I really do love my family. Like I genuinely am thankful to God every day for them. I mean, I just, I love my kids and I love my wife and I don't know why she's with me, but she is. And I just, it's just a, a testament to God's good grace and kindness upon me. There's nothing I could have done to earn her. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about myself. I know that's probably going to bore you, but it's important. You'll see why I'm telling you this. Uh, you know, I was, I was adopted uh, when I was about four months old in an orphanage in Seattle. Um, I have two older sisters, about seven and eight years older than me. And uh, I never felt weird about being adopted because my parents were always, I, mean, I just had great parents. They loved me well, and they did a great job in just making me not feel odd and bizarre. As a matter of fact, they probably insert a little bit of pride in there because when my, when I was about, I think six or seven, my sisters were playing and I was bugging them and I came in and was annoying them as little brothers do. And my one sister looked at me and she said, you're adopted. And I'm like, wow, well, that's new. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She goes, do you know why you're adopted? I said, no. And she said, because your real mom and dad wanted to go camping and they didn't want to bring you. So now I, I like camping. So I'm like in tears, a little bit upset. And I go to my mom and I said, uh, mom, am I adopted? And she said, yeah. And I was more upset by the fact that they didn't take me camping than I was about the fact that this wasn't my real mom and dad. Right. And I said, is it true that they didn't want to take me camping? She's like, no, 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 no. And, uh, come to find out my mom was a drug addict and she was an addict and using while I was in her womb and like just a messy situation. But my mom said something to me that that was probably not helpful. She said, but here's the thing, son, we got to choose you, but your sisters, we had to take whatever came out. So like, don't worry about it. Right. Don't worry about it. And so I reminded my sisters of that my whole life to this day. I'm like, I'm chosen. Right. So you see like election and predestination. It's not a problem for me. Like I get that. Right. God's grace. He just chose me. And, uh, my, uh, my mom She's, uh, my parents both grew up in the Midwest and, uh, my dad's just a strong, burly dude. He's a man's man. He's kind of a big, burly guy. He's got a, he kind of looks like Kenny Rogers, Kenny Rogers or Grizzly Adams sort of mixed together. And, uh, just a big guy, big lovable guy. My mom is fiery. She's about four foot nine and she has a size two and a half shoe. And she, she is tough. I mean, like I got any gen, you know, quality of being gentle I have, I got from my dad. And my fighting spirit I got from my mother. My mom contracted polio when she was four. And, uh, but like, you wouldn't know it. <laughs> my mom was tough and strong and just, yeah, she just, I mean, in terms of quality of character, it was amazing watching them. My dad worked hard and worked long hours to provide for his kids and he did a good job of that. My mom loved me well. And more importantly, I guess what I should share with you is that I am a forgiven sinner saved by scandalous grace and written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's really why I'm here. I, I tell you this a little bit about myself, one, so you get to know me, and number two, because as I tell you about myself, what I'm not doing is I'm not getting up and just sort of rattling off like facts, right? I don't get up and go, January 26, 1969, five foot 10, 200 and some pounds, and... <laughs> Social security number, here's my address and phone number, and then, I, and then that's it. That's my introduction. We don't do that, right? We don't do that because when we get to know one another, we always get to know one another in the context of a story. When I met my wife, 
We spent so much time on the phone because we were learning about one another. And I was learning about her story and how she grew up. And her parents were like OG Mexican gangbangers, right? Her whole, like, grandparent, great-grandparents, like, all old-school gangbangers. And she is, like, the most fragile flower that you'd ever meet. Am I right, Abby? She's just not, like, confrontational. But one day she's going to open a can. I just know it. I know it's in there somewhere. Um, and I learned so much about my wife from learning about her background and vice versa. We spend all that time getting to know each other for a reason because, because the way that we make sense of reality, the way that we make sense of our life, and the way that we form and understand our own identity is always set in the context of a story. It's always set in the context of the story. But yet, for whatever reason, when it comes to discussing the gospel, we almost reduce it down to just facts. Not that it doesn't have facts and content. It most certainly does. Just like January 26, 1969 is my birthday, just in case you're curious. Remember that. I might want to write down. Um, like, that is true. But that's not, that doesn't really tell you who I am. Like, that tells you that I'm a little bit, I'm 40 now. That might tell you that. But that's about it. It doesn't tell you much more than that. And so when we, when we do this with the gospel and we don't talk about it in the context of the story, we don't really picture, see ourselves in its narrative. Uh, we don't understand how this story shapes our identity. And it makes it very difficult to, to tell the gospel story to someone because, because it just is weird, right? Like you're talking to somebody at work and they talk about how they just broke up with their boyfriend and you go, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, rose from the dead. <laughs> and then you just weird, in a weird way walk away, right? Like... <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. That's very interesting. I appreciate that. We don't do that. We engage not only in their story, as Jeff's been talking to us about, but we engage in telling the story of the gospel. And Jeff's done a great job the last few days talking about the gospel. And I know it's very tempting to just be repetitive um, because my job, I was invited to come here and speak about a gospel-centered community and part one, part two. So tonight's part one. So I want to talk about the gospel. And then tomorrow night, I want to talk about how the gospel transforms and changes us and calls us into a community that actually forms us as a people that are on mission. So there'll be a little bit more of the practical how to's tomorrow and how we actually one another in the gospel and how that becomes a display, a light to the nations as we're a city set on a hill. But tonight I want to just talk about the gospel proper. And if there's ever going to be anything that you're repetitive about, it should be the gospel, right? Like talking about the gospel over and over and over again is probably pretty good because I'm convinced that because we've reduced the gospel oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes into these just these little bits of truth, what we end up doing is we end up filling in the narrative gaps with our own things and it ends up creating confusion not only for ourselves but it also creates confusions for those that are watching our life and listening into how we talk about the gospel. So with your permission, I thought what I'd, I don't know how you're going to stop me, but like I'm, I'm supposed to say with your permission, like that's a good homiletical thing. With your permission, my segue now. Now we're going to talk about the gospel, and I hope that as we do so, you'll begin to see that it is made up of rich content and facts, but what the gospel is calling you to do is to believe in its narrative. The gospel's calling you to believe in it so that you actually begin to see yourself changed and transformed and explained by it. You learn what God has done in it, and it actually will do what we're going to talk about tomorrow, cause you to actually be a missional transformed people. So with that said, let's, let's just jump on in and talk about the gospel. If you want to put it up, uh, feel free to do so. 
I'm going to really kind of be working off, I guess you call it a three-legged stool. I was trying to think of a neat metaphor. Jeff's great at metaphors. I'm not. So not as creative as he is. He's from Tacoma. And uh, I grew up in Port Orchard, which is Tacoma's kind of like cool and cultured. Port Orchard in Washington is like hairy lumbermen that just come out of the woods. And that's where I grew up. So I like axe, food, sky is high. Like that's how I talk. So you're not going to get much creativity tonight, but I'm working off of a three-legged stool. Okay, you got that? Picture the metaphor. Three-legged stool is simply this. Gospel, community, and mission. And this three-legged stool, and I I, I want to be very careful and not saying that the gospel is the same thing as community and mission, but with a stool, it's not going to stand if you remove one of the legs. And it's the same with misunderstanding the gospel. If the gospel isn't set in the context of a communal people that are on mission, you're not going to understand it. I mean, it's really going to be very confusing for you. And if any of you have struggled to understand the power of the gospel and, uh, and you're looking at your life and you're not really in community and you're not really on mission, that's a good place to start. So let's, let's talk about that. We're going to talk about the gospel and we'll work from there. Okay. Gospel cannot be removed from community. Okay. Cannot be removed from mission. It, it's sort of like, um, like, I don't know, like a Philly roll and wasabi and soy sauce. Like they all go together, right? It's kind of like NASCAR, mobile homes and mullets. Like they don't make any sense <laughs> without the other, right? Like, if somebody has a mullet and they're not a NASCAR fan, it's very confusing, right? <laughs> so is the gospel apart from community and mission. So let's do this. Let's, I'm going to read what I've been able to deduce as best as possible with the help of my friends. A, it's very hard to give a short summary of the gospel because there's so many ways in which the Bible speaks about the gospel that uh, I, I think it's a good summary, but certainly I wouldn't make this a definitive end-all be-all to an explanation of the gospel. We'll work off of it tonight. Let me read it, we'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. Jesus Christ, God's promised rescuer and ruler, lived our life, died our death, and rose again in triumphant vindication as the firstfruits of the new creation to bring forgiven sinners together Under his gracious reign. Jesus Christ, God's promised rescuer, ruler, rescuer and ruler, lived our life, died our death, and rose again in triumphant vindication as the first fruits of the new creation to bring forgiven sinners together under his gracious reign. Let's pray. God, help us to learn the gospel. We, uh, we confess, we Leak it constantly. We are a people that um, forget uh, its truth, its power. Confess to you that not only do we forget, oftentimes we, we disbelieve. When we sin, we are disbelieving the gospel. Lord, we know that our actions always follow what we believe. Behavior is always a product of belief. And if that's true, Lord, then that means that that if we struggle with being a people that are willing to open up our lives in community, and if we're struggling with being a people that are fearful and or, uh, Lord, just at this point, not gathering together and being missional together, uh, we know it's because we've not really believed the gospel. 
And so, Lord, we just pray that you teach it to us clearly tonight, that you'd give us help. We know that nothing can be accomplished without the work of your Spirit. And, Holy Spirit, we're so thankful that what you love to do is you love to illuminate the gospel because the content of it is the Son of God. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for your power, your clarity. We ask for you to open our hearts to understand and to see the beauty of Jesus in this glorious gospel. It's in the name of the Son we pray. Amen. The gospel starts with Jesus Christ. That, that, that should be a given, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It should start with Jesus Christ. Jesus seems to say as much in John 5.39. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think that they have life, but they are these which testify of me. Luke 24, a treatment of Luke 24 in two separate places. The man on the road to Emmaus and his disciples. Jesus is making very clear how we should read the whole Old Testament. He says, look, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are all about me. The whole Old Testament is about, it's about me. You want to know anything about the Old Testament, like if you don't read it through me, like you're never going to understand it. And I think we agree as a people that we should be gospel-centered, right? I mean, I know that this is um, a term of the last five or six years that has been popular, just like missional. We like to adopt these buzzwords that are really cool, like we're missional, gospel-centered, authentic church. Like everybody, so who's not going to say, who's going to say, we're not about the gospel, we're anti-missional, and we're inauthentic? Like no one's going to say that, right? No one's going to say that. We all believe that to be true. We all amen that. We all think, yes, of course, we should be gospel-centered. But you know as well as I do that when you end up having deep conversations with people about what being gospel-centered means, there's a lot of confusion. And then you add that to the practice of their life and seeing whether or not the gospel really is central to how they make their decisions and who they are and their own identity and the way that they treat one another, the way that they see themselves changing, well, you even realize that may not be the case. It may not be gospel-centered, but they say that they are. And it's the same with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe and agree and affirm that it begins with Jesus Christ. But it does beg the question, what Jesus are we talking about? I mean, are we, are we talking about the kind of Jesus that is, uh, got long, feathered, blonde hair that has a beautiful complexion, piercing blue eyes. He's got a long, flowing, very clean robe. And he's sort of kneeling. Like he's doing a glamour shot. Like, is that the kind of Jesus glamour shot? Kind of Jesus, right? Or maybe, maybe the kind of Jesus that is really likes tie-dye shirts and has a Grateful Dead tat on his back and owns like a really crappy beat-up VW bus and Birkenstocks and he likes a plant that he made a little too much. See, that kind of Jesus? That's the kind of Jesus? Or is it the uh, macho UFC Fighting Jesus with like an eternal membership to the NRA always votes Republican and really likes knock-knock jokes. Is that the kind of Jesus that we're thinking about? Like, I mean, I, you see, this foolishness of that is at a distance we just laugh at how preposterous it is to assume that we would have a cultural picture of Jesus that would kind of match our own things that we enjoy, and yet that's what we do. We do have a picture of Jesus that, that we sort of fill in the blanks. And, and we have to understand that the name of Jesus has content to it and, and structure to it. It's not, it's not just a name that floats out there that we actually get to define for ourselves. But when we talk of Jesus Christ, we're actually speaking about someone specific 
that has been promised, as we're going to learn in the Old Testament. And uh, this is someone that has tremendous substance <laughs> and can only be understood in terms of the gospel. So Jesus Christ, God's promised rescuer and ruler. Now we begin to define who Jesus is from the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, God's promised rescuer and ruler. Because Christ isn't like Fairchild is my last name. It's not like Jesus Fairchild. That's like Jesus Christ is kind of how we perceive Christ to be. But it's a very loaded term. It, it's a, it's a uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. And therefore, it's saying Jesus the Messiah, God's promised rescuer and ruler. And it's, I think it's really helpful for us to remember that whenever we talk about the gospel and whenever we talk about Jesus Christ, it isn't as if the gospel just fell out of the sky to us today. It has a history to it. The gospel appeals to history, so to history we must go. And it doesn't just appeal to history 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. It goes all the way back to the promises of the Old Testament. And the promise of the Messiah from Yahweh was that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to rescue his people. He's going to rescue his people. He was going to bring them out of exile. He was going to lead them into the promises of God where they'll come together and live communally under his gracious rule. Let me say that again. The promise of the Old Testament was that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to rescue his people. He was going to bring them out of exile and he's going to lead them into the promises of God where they will come together and live communally under his gracious rule. Now that is a Jesus that gets things done, right? He is more than just a counselor. He's a king. He's the anointed one. And he comes to get things done. He's a a Jesus with power and presence who's able to accomplish what no one has been able to accomplish. He's someone you bow before, someone you worship, someone you honor, someone you pledge your allegiance and obedience to. He's someone that commands such respect that strong, burly men, when he says, come follow me, drop what they're doing and follow him like a child. That's the Jesus we're talking about. Jesus, the Christ that came to accomplish what God had sent him, sent him to accomplish. He is a much better Jack Bauer. I know it's hard to believe. That's either because you have a very exalted view of Jack Bauer or a very low view of Jesus the Christ. He doesn't just come to save a person. He comes to rescue and he has billions of people that he's brought to himself. He's rescued and taken them out of the pits of hell and brought them to himself that they might live under his gracious reign as a benevolent king over his beautiful people. For some of you men, you need to hear that. You really need to hear that. You need to hear about this kind of Jesus so that you don't think that community is for sort of touchy-feely, soft men that gather to talk about how their inner child was spanked. And oddly enough, know what's on sale at Bed Bath & Beyond. That's not the kind of Jesus community like... Like, not men wearing pastels. Like, I'm not against pastels, but I'm just saying, like, if your picture is to get together and have soft talks about a soft Jesus, that's not the Jesus the Messiah was promised to be. It's just not that Jesus. This is the Jesus that we build our life around, the true man, the God-man that comes, who is the very center of 
everything that we are and all of our worship and all of our affection. You know what this does? It releases us from viewing community, and this is super helpful for guys because guys have a hard time in community. It releases us from viewing community as nothing more than just an accountability group where we share our sort of inner dreams and aspirations and a place where I'm continually asked when I show up how I'm doing. You know, like, no, really, no, really, really, like, how are you really doing, right? Or, or a therapy group for people who gather to massage their felt needs. All of these things may happen. It doesn't mean that real accountability and real emotions or real sharing and real brokenness isn't happening in community. It just means that that isn't the center and the reason for us gathering together. The reason for us to come together as a people is to come together around the sun. Whom we are in union with and by being in union with him, we are in communion with one another. That's why we come together. And that's the kind of Jesus that we're coming around. And if it's not the reason... There's some other reason, which I think our hearts, because our hearts by nature desire particular things to take place to satisfy whatever particular felt needs we have. If that is our motivation, then ultimately what we're using Jesus as is a currency to buy our real God. Does that make sense? If you gather together in community and the desire isn't to come together around Jesus, whatever that desire is, is what your God is. And you're just using Jesus as a way to get it. He's your currency to buy what you really think is going to make you satisfied and approved and secure. And this Jesus lived our life and he died our death. Now, this aspect of the gospel is incredibly important if we're going to make any progress in living shared lives with one another. You see, since Jesus Christ lived our life and he died our death, all of our failures are swallowed up as a bitter pill by a king who humbled himself and came to die for my rebellion, our rebellion against a holy God to give me a standing before God as if I lived a perfect life. My sin is given to him and his righteousness is given to me. And For those of you that are at EBC, what is that called? What's the theological terminology for my sin being imputed to him and his sin being imputed or his righteousness being imputed to me? Double imputation. No one said that, but I'll just act like you did. Double imputation. Very good. Awesome. Double imputation. A great transfer. Why is this important? Why does it matter? Is that just sort of theological, you know, words that theologians like to use because no one really knows what they mean and so it makes them sound impressive? Oh, double imputation. I see. <laughs> Let me ponder that, right? No, it is, it is ridiculously important because I think most of us realize that Jesus died for our sins. I think we'd even confess that, right? We'd say Jesus Christ died for our sins and we realize we've failed. We realize we've sinned. We realize we, do, we deserve nothing but God's disfavor, that God is holy, but that's usually as far as we go. We picture God coming in to sort of Wipe our slate clean, don't we? Isn't that the picture? Like you've got a slate that's got just filth and all the things that you've done wrong in your life. And what Jesus does is he comes and he cleanses that slate. He wipes it clean. And uh, that's it. That's it. But the problem is, Jesus didn't come into this world to live our life and die 
our deaths, we'd have, we'd be a bunch of blank slates. Cause that's not what it takes to stand in the presence of God is just being a rock, right? Like we're just a blank slate. We have nothing going on. Just all the stuff that I was supposed to do or have done is now undone in that it was forgiven and he died for my sins and that's it. God doesn't want to fellowship with blank slates. He wants to fellowship with that which is righteous. So we need righteousness and we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And all that we end up doing in our life, all of our idolatry is to that end, to build a righteousness for ourselves. Let me, let me put it this way. It's sort of like, um, like if I had an account, not that I've ever had an account like this, but in case I did, that was overdrawn and was overdrawn significantly and was so overdrawn that stuff continued to bounce. And every time it bounced, Bank of America charged $35 Every time it bounced. So you don't have money. You're really don't have any money. And now they make sure you'll never have any money. Right? Like that's how it goes. Like it just keeps getting bigger. And then someone comes up to me and they, and they say, man, I, I understand your situation. I feel terrible for you. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to pay off your debt out of my own resources. Would you be happy? Come on. Like some of you are like, who is this person? (laughs) Point them to me. But here's the problem. You are still broke. I have a great debt that's been forgiven. And guess what? You still don't have any money. You're still poor. You still got zeros in your account. Big old goose eggs that you're looking at every time you go to your ATM. And you want to draw out 40 bucks. And it says, (laughs) no. Nothing in there. And you don't like, you're not skipping away going, but I have no debt. I have no debt. Like you're kind of bummed out because you're poor. But if someone came up to me and they said, I understand your situation. I know you can't pay this debt. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, out of my own resources, I'm going to pay off this exorbitant debt. And here's what else I'm going to do for you. I'm going to sell my home. I'm going to sell my cars. I'm going to sell my goods and my belongings. I'm going to cash in my 401k, cash in my iris, and I'm going to give up all that I have, all the resources, all the riches that I've been building my whole life. I've been responsible. All the riches that I've been building my whole life, and I'm going to deposit them in your account. And I'm going to become poor so that you might become rich. Would that make you happy? Right? Right? It wouldn't make you just happy. Like happy is almost a weird word, right? Like happy is when you get like, like extra shrimp when you're only expecting six. They give you like nine. Like I'm happy. Like I got nine shrimp. It's awesome. No, you would be confused. You would be stunned. You'd be shocked. You'd, you wouldn't know. I mean, I mean, there'd be a lot of emotions that would mark your response, but it would be stunning, wouldn't it? It would be stunning to say, why would this person do this? And I guess the prevailing response would be one of just incredible humility and incredible gratitude and a thankfulness. That's what Christ has done for us. He lived our life and he died our death. He wiped our slate clean, but then on that slate, he gave us a righteousness that was his very own. That is perfect standing before the Father, where he, he did not fail at all in keeping the whole law. 
not just the law in some abstract form, but the inclinations of the heart of the Father. I mean, you see, he didn't just keep the law like Jesus was walking around with like a moleskine and checking off all the laws he kept. No, Jesus kept the law in a way that was of full worship to the Father. He loved the Father because to keep the law is summarized in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus did. He loved the Father with all that he was and That's what he did. He kept the law. And all of the credit that Christ built in his righteousness is deposited in your and my account so that we can stand before the Father as a people that he sees as righteous. That's something to get excited about. I mean, like that makes you stunned. And I tell you, the kind of community that this creates, that's created by Jesus' life and death, for us would be a community of humility, thankfulness, and grace. And in humility, I mean, if we believe this, if our communities were marked by this belief, we would be filled with men and women who readily admit and know that they are failures. Do you know that you are a failure? Like, if you come to grips with that, I know that's kind of insulting coming from a guy that you don't know very well. How do you know? Because that's what God says. You are a failure. You've not lived up. You've not kept the law of God. There's no one righteous, no one. You've all gone astray. No one is seeking after him. Your failures, by, by nature of saying that I need the righteousness of Christ, I need his grace, is admitting and declaring bankruptcy. You're saying, I've got nothing I can bring. I'm so broke, I have nada, zip, zero, zilch. I can bring nothing to you. I can only come as a beggar with empty hands and empty pockets and and receive that which by grace you would give me. And that is incredibly freeing in a community. To be a people that are marked by that kind of community, by that kind of humility where they're readily able to confess that they don't have it all together, that they're broken and they're failures, and all of us can kind of breathe a collective exhale, like, that's good news. I tell you, uh, it was just about three or four years ago that I've been a Christian for about 15 years now. I was a pretty hardcore ex-atheist. And one of the things that didn't happen quickly when I came to trust in Christ was I didn't, I wasn't ready or able at that point to admit how much of a failure I was. So I was still sort of like spinning all the plates, right? Like you're doing the thing like this and you've got them. And then somebody says, okay, like read your Bible, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. Okay, there's a plate. Okay. And you're supposed to pray for two hours. Okay, there's another plate. And you're supposed to work hard for the church. Okay, there's another plate. Like at all these plates. And I actually deluded myself in believing that somehow... I wasn't a failure. Like I could do these things. I could like, like somebody cleared my account, but now it's up to me to go make some money. Right? Not realizing I have all the treasure that I need, which is found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't have to make myself look good because in the eyes of the father, the only eyes in the universe that really matter, he sees me as beautiful because he sees me Wrapped in the righteousness of his son. Did you guys see the movie Cold Mountain? Anybody see Cold Mountain? 
That's a great movie. You should watch that movie. I, I hope you like the movie. There's a scene in that film. Um, Renee Zellweger's character, she's sort of like this Appalachian mountain. You know, I, I won't even say, but like she's, she's rough, rough girl, right? And uh, there's a scene, a lovely scene where uh, you see her skinning a dead lamb. And sort of curious as to why that's going on. And the explanation is that, you know, she's skinning this lamb. And the reason why she's skinning this lamb is because sometimes when you have sheep, the mom lamb will give birth to a stillborn baby lamb. And, uh, and, but she's ready to, she's, she's ready to breastfeed and, and there's no, no lamb for her. And, and then you have lambs, baby lambs that were born and the mom died during the birth. And so you've got these little tiny lambs and these baby lambs that want to nurse and you've got these mommy ewes, are they called, that want to breastfeed and the problem is, is that if you try to introduce the baby lamb to the mom, the mom, the first thing she'll do is turn around to smell the baby lamb and will immediately reject the lamb because it is not the scent that is her own. Right? So what Renee Zellweger was doing is she was skinning one of the baby lambs that had died and wrapping it around a baby lamb that had lived and introducing it to the mommy of the baby lamb that died. And the mommy turned around and it smelled the baby lamb and it smelled its own scent. And welcomed it in. That is exactly what our father has done for us and his son. He has wrapped us in the robes of Christ. So that he could accept us in as his very own. He smells the scent of his own son. What do we have to live up to? Our father fully accepts and loves us through Christ. You can admit your failure. You can just admit it. Like we all know it. God knows it. It's not like when you fail, the Father's looking at Jesus and the Holy Spirit going, what they do? Like, I can't believe it. Like, he knows, right? He's not caught off guard by the fact that you're a failure. That's why he sent his son. But when we act like we're not failures, we obscure the sacrifice made for us in the Son. And you know why people that don't want to believe that God the Father punished God the Son on the cross. You want to know why they don't want to believe that? It isn't because they think that's divine child abuse. That seems to be the current explanation. It's because they still are laboring under the delusion that they can be accepted by their own perfection, by their own morality, and by their own goodness. And so for them, they can't imagine why the Father would kill the Son. It makes no sense to them because they think they're okay. It produces a people that are free to say, I failed. And people love it. And not only this, it produces thankfulness. Look, the best way to defeat despair and depression is by being thankful. And I, I want to be very sensitive on this because I know in our church we certainly have people that struggle with depression. And I don't want to minimize that by any stretch of the imagination. I do believe that there are times where there is a physiological reason for it. But I also think a lot of our own despair and apathy comes from the fact that we are not a thankful people. And so we navel gaze. And we complain in our hearts. And we're unhappy and we're unsatisfied and we murmur constantly. Our hearts are just on this repetitive cycle of murmuring like we have Morrissey on a loop, right? Just sad, morose, emo music constantly going on in our hearts, right? 
our hair all comes like this and we really tight pants and like very sad. No one understands me. I hate this family, right? Very sad, but we're, but we're grown-ups in doing that. And here's the thing. He lived our life and died our death. That should make us ridiculously thankful. And I, I think there is a truth to, to our humanness that we need to hear, and it's hard to hear, but I think it's good for us to hear. Um, pride is not how good you think about yourself. And pride is not how horribly you think about yourself. Pride is how much you think about yourself. And for some of you, you're just in deep, deep despair. Because all you're doing is thinking about yourself and refusing to look to the face of the Son. I mean, when you see the Father's face in your imagination, is He frowning? Is He unhappy? Is He disappointed? Are His arms crossed and He's sort of like giving you the tisk tisk look? He's just so bummed out that you keep blowing it and He keeps giving you a chance and you keep blowing it. Or is it the face of a father that is beaming with joy? With joy. He's just incredibly overjoyed at what he sees because given to us by grace, he can say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom my soul delights. In whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that the father is well pleased? If you do, your community is going to be marked by a kind of levity and lightness and joy that isn't so dark and dreary. Now, I'm not saying that that will be the case all the time because certainly there are times for great sobriety and kind of somberness as we are wrestling through significant issues. I'm I'm not saying that. But I am saying that overall, our life should be marked by joy and humility and grace and gratitude. That is the result of the work of Jesus. Lastly, marked by joy and humility and grace and gratitude. That is the result of the work of Jesus. Lastly, Jesus living our life and dying our death produces grace because healthy things reproduce. And I can't think of anything healthier than what Jesus has done on the cross and that given to us by Grace, God's grace caused hearts to bloom and has caused hearts to bloom for 2,000 years. So much so that the gospel's made its way all the way to Simi Valley in 2009. This community will be a community, if it gets the gospel, that's going to welcome the outcast. It is going to welcome the rejects. It is going to welcome the sinners and the scum of the earth because it's filled with the people that realize that's exactly who we are apart from the grace of God. It's who we'd still be except for the intrusion of God's grace into our life. Are you rehearsing the gospel with one another? Are you speaking the gospel to one another? Are you counseling each other with the gospel? Are you praying the gospel? Are you reading scripture as the go- is it good news? Right? Is it good news to you? Or when you hear the gospel, do you misinterpret it? Instead of it being good news, it's actually heavy weight. Our communities will be a reflection of what we believe. 
not only, but Jesus rose again in triumphant vindication. Now, this, this is a fancy way of saying it, but look, as the world watches Jesus being torched on the cross, he is looked at as just another loser in a long line of losers who died a death for defying the empire. And the promise that the Father had made for centuries about this Messiah, clearly Christ failed to be who we thought he was going to be. That, that's what the world saw. Jesus suffered and died, and in his death it appeared as if man and sin had the last word, at least with him. But as Todd prayed, three days later, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, the Son of God, rose from the dead. Jesus proved that all that was promised was fulfilled. His sacrifice was fully accepted and he was vindicated and proven to be true and right. The resurrection was the Father throwing his arms around the Son and saying with gleaming pride and satisfaction, that's my boy. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he gorgeous? Did you see his life? Did you see his death? Pure obedience? Full love for me? He trusted me? That's my boy and I accept everything that he's done. And by grace, through faith, give that to you. Socrates, dead. Plato, dead. Gandhi, dead. Pontius Pilate, dead. Caiaphas, dead. Herod, dead. Caesar, dead. Buddha, dead. Muhammad, dead. Nietzsche, dead. Marx, dead. Stalin, dead. Hitler, dead. Jesus, Alive, ruling and reigning, in triumphant vindication as he broke through the tomb. The mark of the early church, I tell you, it's interesting. I, one of the classes I had to do for um, doing some schoolwork, and one of the classes I had to do was on the early church. And I was trying to understand, like, why, how, how is it that the early church from, okay, so you have 100 A.D., the early church has about 25,000 people. By 310 AD, 210 years later, the gospel has spread to 20 million in 210 years. Okay, let me just say that again. 100 AD, 25,000 Christians. 310, 210 years later, 20 million. And all while Christianity was an illegal religion, they didn't have any buildings, they didn't have smoke and worship, they didn't have kids' programs. They had no social capital. They had no intellectual capital. They had no military capital. They had no intellectual capital. They had nothing except they believed the resurrection actually happened. And the power of that resurrection was like a nuclear bomb to them. They died really, really, really well. It was stunning. There's stories, uh, if you read Rodney Stark, there's uh, stories of of uh, early Christians that... Rome, when, uh, you know, Rome was made up of a bunch of different people throughout um, the Near East and Middle East, and uh, these people would end up leaving to go visit their home, and then they'd come back after long trips, and they'd catch some disease. They'd come back to their particular, sort of like New York's broken up into barrios, I mean, um, yeah, boroughs, sorry. And so they'd be broken up into these various boroughs of the city where a particular ethnicity would live, and they'd do life, and they'd do business together. And, well, someone would come back, they'd be sick, and they'd get the whole area sick and this disease or virus would kill a lot of people and so they'd they'd block off that area and quarantine that area 
And there are stories of early Christians that because they believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in triumphant vindication, where they moved into the neighborhoods of people that were not their own, not even speaking their language, not even really knowing who they were, they would move into those neighborhoods, they would occupy the apartments that were abandoned because the people died, and as families, because they didn't have a high view of life, would take their dying, especially the elderly, and place them out on the street to be picked up with the trash or to just die in the heat, Christians would pick them up, bring them into their apartments, and care for them, realizing that they're going to die by doing it. And you know why? Jesus Christ rose from the dead in triumphant vindication. That's why. Like, they're like, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, I will rise from the dead, this life is not my own, I've been bought with a price, what's the problem? Give it away for the cause of the gospel, praise the Lord. They died really, really well. I mean, ridiculously well and was stunning to the pagan world because only every now and again you would get a hero that would die well, like a hardened military guy that would die on some great principle and spout some pithy quote and then he'd croak. But those are very few. With Christians, you had Christians that were mocked and tortured for fun. And as some of them would be burned alive, they would raise their arms and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and ask the living Christ to forgive their persecutors. And they just died really, really well. Was that a gospel of come to Jesus and he's going to fix all your financial problems? Come to Jesus and he's going to fix all your marital problems? Come to Jesus and he's going to fix all your health problems? Come to Jesus and going to give you a smoking kids program? No. It was come to Jesus and die so that you might live. And to them, that was glorious news. And they proclaimed it in their death. How beautiful is that? Like, I think, especially dudes are like, oh, oh, oh. Like, some of us want that. Some of you are thinking, I'd like to die that way. Like, I've always said, I told my wife when I met her, because I really like animals, and I don't know why, it's not a weird thing going on, but I'm just saying, I like animals, right? I was in martial arts from six years old on. I don't know why. Maybe it was in the martial arts or something. But I told my wife when I met her, the way that I wanted to die was by fighting an animal. Just being honest with you. Like, I started off with a knife and a bear. I wanted to have a knife and I wanted to fight a bear to death. And you see, like, when the animals attack, I'm like, okay, maybe not a bear. Maybe a lion. You see a lion attack and I'm like, I bet you I could beat a bobcat. But then they have claws and teeth, so then I reduced it. My wife watched through this whole progression. It was very funny. Then it was a wolf, because, you know, wolf only have paws. They don't have claws. So if I can get him in a chokehold, put him to sleep, I'm okay. Now it's like, you know, a hamster. Like, maybe I'll die by <laughs> fighting a hamster. That's about all I can handle right now. Might get lost in one of my roles. I don't know. I just... I, I want to die well, Right? I hear this and I want to die well, but you have to understand that the reason why they were able to die well because the gospel was true to them. You see, the gospel wasn't just true for them. It was the true story of the whole world. It was true for everyone. It was universal news. And because it was more than just true for them, but universally true, it was in fact true, they were able to bear up under tremendous persecution. And I guess what I'd say for you and I, they'd be able to bear up under great discomfort. A difficulty, challenge, when our lives are sort of being called to something greater than ourselves. Because the gospel is true. And if you believe the gospel, you realize it's not just true for you, it's true 
And we call everyone to believe it. And that has power. And that can disagree with you when you're leaking it and when you're forgetting it. You can bank on the fact that it's true. Also, as the first fruits of new creation, the resurrection wasn't just like Jesus' personal victory as he was able to kind of flip off his enemies with a resounding, I told you so. That wasn't the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of new creation. It was a pledge of a new world. It was a promise that he is in fact coming back to finish what he began by completing what he started in his great restoration project of the entire world. But it was also a shout to all that would hear this new world order had begun and the old one is being done away with. Excuse me. <coughs> it was the breaking in of God's kingdom in the world. The old kingdom is closing. It's a promise that he's restoring this world before our own very eyes. And he's coming back to finish the job. No sin, no death, no more tears was his promise. And it is true for you and I. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we now have a foretaste of what is coming. And we're put on display as this foretaste of the entire world. I'm going to cough again. I'm sorry about that. Excuse me. <coughs> That's so attractive, isn't it? <coughs> like a hairball. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> I was fighting a hamster before I got here, oddly enough. <coughs> and is to bring forgiven sinners together under his gracious rule. And by bringing this new creation together under Jesus' rule and reign as our new king, Jesus then ascends to the right hand of the Father where he sits enthroned as the Holy One. He sends his Holy Spirit to indwell his people and to apply his victory to their lives in a new community. And in these communities, the fruit of Jesus' work is put on display for the glory of God. That's how we can be told that we will do far greater works than He would. How could he say that? Well, because instead of him moving around in a single body in his incarnation, he now rises to the right hand of the Father. He ascends in his coronation. He's crowned as king of his people, as Lord of all creation. And then from his throne, he sends the spirit into the church to indwell the church for the sake of the world, for the glory of God. And he is moving from his throne through you and I for the sake of the world, for the glory of God. And we join him in that. He brings forgiven sinners together to live under his gracious rules, to be put on display as a model people for the world. And if anyone is ever going to ask us, what kind of ruler and rescuer is Jesus? We should be able to look at the church and say, look at the church, his community and his people. If anyone ever asks what the future is going to be like, what eternity is going to be like, we should be able to say, look at his church, because that's the outpost of eternity. Of course it's marred, of course it's hazy, but there should be enough definition there where people are getting what future restoration is and understanding what the first fruit is that we're experiencing. I mean, they should see it. It should raise questions. They should be curious. And that's certainly what happened with the early church. The early church was confusing because they, on the one hand, were strangely attractive, but yet on the other hand, they were incredibly vilified. No one knew what to do with them. They were an odd people. They were actually called their own genus, which means that they were their own species of people. They didn't fit into the categories of people at this time of history. No one could understand them because they didn't understand the gospel. But for those that believed the gospel, for those that believed that Jesus Christ, God's promised rescuer and ruler, lived our life and died our death and rose again in triumphant vindication as the first fruits of the new creation to bring forgiven sinners together 
under his gracious reign, it was the power of God unto salvation for all that would believe. It was of first importance. If we don't nail this, we can talk about community and mission all day long, and we're neither, we're going to have neither. We're neither going to have gospel community, and we're not going to have gospel mission. We have to nail the gospel. We have to discuss the gospel. For Paul, this is everything. Like Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, look, if I or an angel of, from heaven come to you and bring a gospel to you of that which is different than that which I preached, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Let him be cut off. This isn't a matter of like we're 99% there. For Paul, it's any deviation from the gospel is non-gospel. And it's power, and it's true, and it's glorious, and it's beautiful, and it's what we need in our community, and it's what the world is waiting to see. They're waiting to see it, right? And if we have the gospel at it, the center of our life and community, because we believe that the gospel is the power that changes people through the life and death of Jesus, people are going to think we're an evangelical charismatic church because we believe people need to be converted by the gospel. Because we're a church that believes that the gospel brings us together under his gracious rule and we're going to have deep community and love for one another and various smaller expressions and communities littered throughout the city, people are going to think we're Anabaptist church or Mennonite churches. Because we believe that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom and he's given us a taste of the first fruits of new creation and we were working towards city renewal and engaging culture and caring for the poor and marginalized, people are going to assume we're a mainline liberal church. No one's going to understand us. Praise the Lord. Don't get us and just ask. Right? You don't understand? Exactly. Let me tell you about the beautiful and glorious gospel of Jesus the Christ. The truth is, we're going to look very different in our culture. And uh, I pray that that's the case for your life. I hope that as you rehearse the gospel with one another and you speak the gospel with one another and you pray the gospel for one another and you teach the gospel with one another, I pray that you begin to see the transforming, powerful effect that it has in your life. And it is what the gospel's about. It is power. It's not like a nice little add-on. It's not like, like I got my card, a sweet deal. I wasn't expecting the sunroof and CD player. Sweet. That's the gospel. No, no. It is not just a power. It is the power of God and the salvation. And it doesn't need to like be coached or coaxed or manipulated. It needs to just simply be set loose. It needs to be let out its cage, as Spurgeon said. Just be freed. You speak the gospel and believe the gospel to one another. And trust me, it's going to be messy and it's going to be beautiful. And that's what we're going for, a beautiful mess. No hamsters, but a beautiful mess. Let me pray for you because I don't know if my voice is going to make it any longer, which is a blessing for you. And uh, I can pray for you. We're, we're going to, we're going to, I know we're going to have a Q&A session. Um, tomorrow night uh, when you come out, we're going to unpack uh, the gospel and its implications in our community, specifically how we want another. So I, I want you to begin to think through like, what is it actually going to look like? What does this mean? How are we going to actually treat one another? And what does it mean for us to actually begin to form these communities? And again, much of this is just continuing on what Jeff has already started. But I hope, I hope, I hope 
uh, that it is a blessing to you as it has been for us at Kaleo. And uh, feel free to ask whatever questions you want to ask. And it, we're, we're an open book, so um, fire away on text message. Let me, uh, let me pray for you if I can. Father, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you. It's beautiful. Jesus the Christ, God's promised rescuer and ruler who lived our life and died our death and rose again in triumphant vindication as the first fruits of the new creation to bring forgiven sinners like us, like me, together under his gracious, gracious reign. We love you, God. You're so good to us. Thank you for the power of this wonderful news. I pray that, Lord, you would massage this into the hearts of all that are here. You would grant faith and trust in the glory of this gospel, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. If, uh, if I could go ahead and have the community pastors come on up. Um, I don't know where they're at. I kind of can't see out there tonight, but go ahead and come on up. Um, if you're someone that wants to go uh, grab your kids, uh, feel free. Uh, I haven't heard there's chaos tonight, so Central is such a great community. Oh, thank you very much. Um, thank you. Yeah. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, <laughs> Isari, um, we're going to uh, go ahead and have some Q&A uh, here for just a little bit, but I'm going to let everybody go do what they got to do before we get to Q&A. Thank you so much for the ones that you've been texting in. There are some absolutely phenomenal questions coming in. And so uh, let's go ahead and get going. If you could throw that first question up for us. Uh, oh, yeah, this is the long one. So should I quit my job? Yes. Break up with my girlfriend? Definitely. <clears throat> first Corinthians 7. Uh, and go to a different school because uh, they're not in the same square miles as my house. And now here's the serious part. Uh, it's as though we are condemning, or yeah, condemning community in a modern world with cars and other things to stay in only a couple of miles. Uh, is there one cookie-cutter image of how to live in a community? Is there but one methodology? Are there but not? Well, are there not different roles uh, in a community? Uh, did any of you? Yeah, it is. It's going to take us about an hour to unpack that one. Um, does anybody want to attack? You've got the microphone. You want anybody to go after it? I mean, the first part of that, uh, should I quit my job, break up with my girlfriend? I mean, I understand, I think I'm getting the heart in that is, is, you know, I'm, everybody's kind of spread out and we live in Simi and, and, uh, and it's not your specific neighborhood. And I guess my thought is, um, I heard an example yesterday. It was a great example. It was though somebody lived in Africa and, uh, and they came here to their mission field and then went back home. You know, and it's like to make all that drive and the time consumed in the process of that, it does neglect the mission field. But then I think of this idea that says, uh, man, break up your girlfriend, quit your job. Yeah, I got, I mean, I, I've got an intern that, that uh, is working with a specific age stage. And I've literally at the stage of life that he's at, for him to think through the time that he would save and commute and his fear of influence, I think there's some health to thinking about where the mission field is and how much time I exhaust doing certain things that take away from that mission field. Does that make sense? Am I clear on that? Word. Word. So to some degree it does, but, but I think it, there's going to be some truth behind the matter. Like, no, like we're one body, so I don't want to negate that idea that then we're going to collect on, on certain, certain things. So 
I don't know what I'm not being clear on. I just think the main thing that is, is uh, where we're coming from as, as, as Cornerstone. Um, so often you look out across a place like Simi Valley, California, and people will always say to me, oh, I just feel like you're hemming us in by trying to get us excited about those that live within uh, 50 feet of us that we sleep next to, drive by, um, and are existing around uh, seven days a week, uh, 365 days a year. And somehow that is c- confining Instead of looking at it, I think, from a different angle, which is to understand what an absolute privilege to be around this group of people that probably aren't going to move from you, that you're going to get to know, love, gather other believers around you. There are some neighborhoods in Simi Valley that have 200 people from Cornerstone in them in a square mile. And what a phenomenal opportunity as God's people to begin to pocket together where these people get to watch you exist together, love one another, which I'll let you unpack the one another's. But the one another's are this beautiful way in which we demonstrate Christ to the world in an undeniable work of the spirit of God that they look at that and they can't help but ask the question, what is going on inside of them? And so I know in my own neighborhood, there's about six houses that I've chosen to get to know. And I'm trying to pray for them, uh, know them, understand them. And then there's believers in my neighborhood that I'm actually calling alongside of me. And hopefully now also they're watching how I live around them with the hopes that they also now begin to partner with other believers to begin to reach this place. Now, you could have a mission field that's different, but I would just tell you this. It would be a very ineffective, all-over-the-place kind of mission field. And then you would be sporadically accomplishing the gospel versus grabbing one place where you live and beginning to gather other believers around you to be able to demonstrate in a way that is unlike any other inside of a neighborhood. I don't believe God placed you in the house he placed you in by accident. I don't believe you got placed in this time period by accident. In other words, you were placed there for a specific role, and to neglect those people is just like the guy that was walking alongside of the road, who I know, the Pharisee and the scribe, they had ministry to do somewhere. They had phenomenal ministry, but every day now we walk by this guy and we leave him there and just assume somebody else will be the church to them. And so this has become a huge thing in my heart as I have have looked at Scripture and even as we've decided how is it that most effectively we can reach Simi Valley and it starts right there with your family around other families. Should you break up with your girlfriend? Um, I don't know. Um, There's other questions I would say off of that. Should you quit your job? Maybe. I would even venture, I would challenge people to actually consider quitting their job to help fulfill the mission in a greater way. Um, Should I go to a different school? I, I don't know. Those things are all peripheral to the major issue, which is Jesus Christ being proclaimed where you live. That is the major issue in the community. And so I can tell you've got a thought you want to throw in there. Um, No? Yes? Um, I I think that the the challenge with with community is if only we um, find ourselves in community or pursuing community with people that are just like us, that's, like, think about that. That's sort of like self-worship. Like, I'm so great. I'm so glorious. Like, I want to be around people just like me. Aren't I awesome? Like, that's sort of what affinity-based community groups are like, where you're just really wanting to be around people that are like you. And I think the challenge is to get in community around people that, from proximity, are not only close, but that you may not have a ton in common with. Like, there's something beautiful about the gospel being worked out with a 60-year-old man um, and, you know, a 16-year-old kid that he needs that wisdom. And maybe that 16-year-old kid would not normally want to hang out with that dude, but 
Boy, he needs to. And the best way that you're going to learn what it's like to be a godly grandfather is not by becoming a grandfather. It's by watching grandfathers work out the gospel in their life as they give themselves away in community for the sake of mission. And that's how you're going to learn that. So I'm just concerned that that there is a, a resistance to getting into community, and I'm not sure if it is like it is easy to, to make, I don't want to say excuse, but it's easy to, to um, sort of brush it off because, you know, it's just that's not, that's not my tribe. But I'm just so glad that Jesus, like, didn't come for only his tribe because, like, he, we, he would have never come to us. And I think we need to display the gospel. Plus, I think Acts 17.26 says, says as much. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted periods of when we're going to come in and when we're going to go out, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Like God chose sovereignly that you are going to live exactly where you live. And it's not accidental. You're born today and not on a Tibetan mountain a thousand years ago for a reason. Like, praise the Lord, right? But he put you in the place that you're in so that you would actually affect the neighborhood that you're planted in. And I think this principle, it's a corny principle, but the principle of blooming where you're planted is an important one. Why wouldn't you want to bloom where you're planted? All right, let's go to the next one. I want to try to get through a few more. At Cornerstone, uh, how do we know that people uh, who get baptized truly understand salvation, that it's not an emotional response giving a false sense of salvation and you love that question, Matt, so I'll, uh, I'll give it to you. Um, with this one, I really don't think people need to truly, under, uh, truly understand salvation in order to get baptized. Um, I think they just need to get it. And the Holy Spirit needs to regenerate them. They need to express faith in the gospel. But to fully get it, this question came tonight, and I think there's there's so much depth and breadth to the gospel. I mean, and a lot of churches we do, you know, seven weeks of classes to make sure you get it. And uh, I just think, honestly, you're never going to fully get it, and you're never going to fully understand it. And there's a lot of people in the New Testament that got baptized, and they didn't understand that going into the water was dying to your old ways, and coming out of the water was... was representative of the resurrection, resurrected life. And so the way I see it is pretty simple. People believed they were baptized and they were like babes and they didn't fully get it. So um, I think when people get baptized here at Cornerstone, if they get it, let's baptize them. I think if like a year later they're like, I don't think I fully got it. I need to get baptized again. I would say, no, you don't. You know, you, you didn't fully get it. So good. Now, keep living. You don't need to do that again. That's just when you first place that faith in the Lord. And if it's an emotional thing, I mean, Acts 2 looked pretty emotional. You know, there was a lot of things. There was a lot of people buying into it. There was a lot of people placing faith in it. And so I'm not saying false salvation. I'm saying if someone comes into the prayer room and they're like, I think I get this. I got faith. Like, I believe in Jesus. He died. He rose again. Let's get you baptized. I don't have to ask too many other questions. Let's get you baptized. Then I'll fully explain it to you and all the points of Calvinism and everything else. And we'll get you all lined up and then you'll be walking. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I hate the idea of rebaptism. So if any of you guys got dunked years ago when you were 16 because your youth pastor told you so, you're baptized. Don't come back up here. So (laughs) I just... I look at that, and I, I look at the community side of that, and I say, what an opportunity we have as a body of Christ to connect with people 
who come through the waters of baptism, grab them one-on-one, one-on-two, whatever, and walk with them and begin to teach them more about the gospel. We, our tendency is to let the church or the pastor always speak to them. Well, how are they going to fully understand? They're not learning to read the Bible and they're not getting an Old Testament lesson. They're not getting a, you know, systematic theology necessarily through the message from the pulpit. What greater privilege do we have? And I, and I know in my community, this is one of the things that I love because people are looking for things to attach to in community, things to do. This is a great thing to do. When you know your neighbor's baptized and you see it and, and you get an email, maybe you don't know, you're not here and they get baptized and you get an email, boy, you know, you should be so excited, number one, that they got baptized, but number two, now you have an opportunity to walk with this person and share the glorious gospel over and over and over in their life and help them and watch them in their discipleship. I think a big thing you're going to see is as we move more and more towards our neighborhoods, hopefully, I mean, we live in California. We've got pools. We've got hot tubs. We've got more water-containing things than any place on the planet. Um, Hopefully what will start to happen is as people come to Christ within our neighborhoods, We'll know. We'll know these people. We've walked with these people. In other words, now it's not possibly now an emotional decision anymore. This is kind of the, the, the church that we've created does create questions like this, that when we're in our neighborhoods together walking around people, knowing these people, a lot of these questions become less and less of a reality. Plus, for, throughout church history, this baptism question, trust me, we're not the first group of people to ask this question. It has been around uh, the rebaptizers from years back all the way to the Anabaptists to these different groups. Uh, but the thing that we've taken a position on is we look at the book of Acts, we see that a person professed faith, they chose to follow Jesus Christ, and there was the water. And so that's kind of been our position. So let's go on to the, to the next one. Where does global ministry uh, fall into this whole deal? Uh, those of us who feel called to, to reach the globe... Anybody want to take that or? That's my hobby list, but I'll let Steve. Yeah. Um, we're um, kind of revamping our global ministry, and what we want to see is that all missions actually takes off from community. So this is a much better way to do it. What we're saying is we want to know that you're actually living missionally where you're at now before you think of going somewhere else to do it. And it's been talked about quite a bit. It's been talked about if we were going to go somewhere, say you were going to go in the mission field and you were going to pick a place to go. And this is taken out of the total church book. But you were going to pick a place to go and say you picked Africa. Okay, the reason you pick Africa is because you knew there was an unreached people there and you wanted to go reach these people and that's how you pick where you're going to go. And then they say the next question might be in your mind, well, what am I going to do when I get there? Am I going to work somewhere, you know, that's concealed and no one can see me and I can't meet people? No, of course not. You're going to work where you're amongst the people, where you're able to make relationships with the people and talk with the people and know the people. Well, what about my living, you know, and my expenses? And I'm going to think through all that because I want money to be able to invest where I'm at. I want to invest in this mission that I feel called to. So I'm going to work at a place that will allow me to invest and live in a place where there's going to be other people around. And I'm going to gather people to pray with me. I'm going to gather people that will reach this unreached people with me, that will pray alongside of me, that will walk with me, that will talk with me on this mission. And then the question comes to this. What about your neighbors? Because that is where God placed you. That's where God placed all of us. 
And see, we have to think in our own neighborhood, reaching those people that live across the street and down the street that don't know the gospel, that are lost, that are truly living in darkness on a road straight to damnation. And it's like we've got to think about that and care about that before we think about going somewhere else because we can't have the heart somewhere else if we don't have the heart where we're at now. You know, God says, be faithful with little and I will give you what? I will give you much. And that's the picture. And we want to see that happening here. We want to see the hearts formed here in our community and then go out. So we want to walk with people in the community. We want people to walk together in the community and talk about this heart for for missions and going out and why. And we want to make sure that we're not running from something, but we're actually running to something. I think another aspect that's going to become very important is that out of these neighborhoods, we should be able to look at people and go... Those three or four people out of the neighborhood, they got to go. They get it. They understand it. Uh, uh, They need to be a group that leaves to not not only plant churches maybe in our neighborhood, but maybe we need help over in the valley. I don't know if you've heard, over in the valley, I think we have, uh, or in in L.A., we have 90 language groups in which we're the second largest uh, uh, population of that group anywhere on the planet. So I think we have the second largest Korean population on the planet. We have the second largest. And so in other words, global ministry in ways we don't even understand is right over the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to reach uh, uh, Indians, uh, they're there. Um, in fact, if you are more effective probably at reaching people that come from India, helping them grasp and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and send them back than for you to go learn the language, learn the culture, learn all this other stuff. In other words, learn to be the people of God where you live before you ever consider going anywhere else. I should be able to walk around. If anybody wants to leave here and go somewhere else on the planet, I should be able to walk to your neighbors and say, tell me about that person. I, we're considering possibly uh, sending them in a different place on this planet. We want to know, should we even do it? Do they talk to you about Jesus? Do they, do they love you? Do they All these different things about it. Because I oftentimes read through these uh, uh, long lists of why somebody should go on the mission field. And I always ask that question, do they actually live it here? Um, and so we're going to be really working hard to help people understand, first of all, we, we have to live it here. We have to be a people on mission here. The second part is, is we're going to try to connect you with people all over the planet. My hope is that every community has at least one person within their community that they pray for, email, get to know, get to know their country, pray for their country. So in other words, every different community is going to then have somebody overseas or somewhere else in which they're praying for them and getting to know them. I think the most difficult thing I run into with people that come back from the mission field is they're out on mission and they come home and they congregate with people that aren't. And that is bizarre to them. They're out selling everything they have. They're doing everything they can to accomplish the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they come back to a group of people that aren't. And that is bizarre. And so therefore now we're not talking the same language anymore. And then when they come home to be on this respite, they don't really get a respite because they're trying to convince people not on mission to help them on their mission where they are that don't understand what they're doing when they get over there. So therefore, our goal is is to get people on mission here so that then they can be more effective as they pray. They can actually talk the same language as those people all over the planet because they're doing it right here in their very own neighborhoods. They are forsaking all for the gospel of Jesus Christ here, just like their brothers and sisters are all over the planet. So I could keep preaching on it, but we're going to keep going. Go to the next one. 
Uh, how do you live in the power of Christ exactly? I feel like I'm always living for God in my own power. How do you do what you can't do? What am I missing? David, you want to take a stab at that one? I don't have my glasses on, but the last part is, how do you do what you can't do? What am I missing? What am I missing? The gospel. How do you do what you can't do? Because one did it for you. And the beauty of the gospel is that you can fail without ever really failing. You know, I love that about the gospel. I like to know I'm like 5'10", and if I try something, if I just put my neck out there in faith and I fall um, without making one step forward, you know, I'm like 5 foot 10 inches closer the cool thing about it is I didn't actually fail because there's no way I can fail because Christ didn't fail and my approval and security and the success of the life I was supposed to live isn't, isn't managed by me, it's managed by Jesus. So how do I do, what's the last, again, what's the last one? What you can't do. I mean, I, I don't know what the specifics are. Um, sometimes you shouldn't do what you can't do because you're not supposed to do it. So I don't know which part that, but I would also say, that oftentimes that we can't do what we want to do, which are good things, because um, we definitely are trying in our own flesh, our own power. And I, my, my recommendation would be just to believe the gospel more deeply and uh, to trust that Christ has succeeded for you and to try. And if you fail, be happy in Christ. Be, you know, be joyful in Christ because you've not failed. And that dynamic will keep you going. Without specifics, it's hard to answer. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said, though. Next one. Many times it feels awkward switching the conversation from natural to spiritual things. Mm. Do you have an, any approaches that have been uh, comfortable for you? Why don't you take a stab at that one again? We'll pass it around. After yeah. Um, I, 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 I guess I understand the question. I, I guess my, my challenge would be I'm not sure what the difference between natural and spiritual things are necessarily. I know that that sounds like a kind of like I'm avoiding the question, but like I just don't know what that would be because I think everything can be discussed in terms of the gospel. And if you talk about um, image and beauty and you talk about anorexia and bulimia and you talk about pornography and sexuality, you talk about environmentalism, Talk about saving the whales. I mean, every single thing that you can discuss, work, it all is unto the glory of God. And so it needs to be seen through a redemptive lens. And I think that that makes everything up for spiritual discussion. I think the problem is we, we often categorize spiritual discussion as those things that we do, like just the you know more narrow, like, um, um, yeah, like, Jesus is God, you are sinner, God is holy, the end. Like I think we like leave it at just that. And I, don't, I, th- I think what we do is we, we hurt, our, hurt ourselves in being able to find ways in to the conversation. I mean, I, I'm convinced that the more 
we just gossip the gospel in very natural ways with one another, the easier it is to just talk about it. And like, how cool is it when you're in community and you're just talking about the gospel to one another to have unbelievers listening in? Like we've had this happen on a number of occasions. We're ministering to uh, next door neighbors of ours. And I want to mention their names because I'm, I'm trusting that they're going to become Christians and they might want to actually watch this video at some point. So I got to be careful, but they'll actually know who I'm talking about. So I just put myself in a trap. Okay. Um, so forgiveness I ask is exercised. Um, we're ministering to this this family next door, and uh, they have a, uh, an older uh, a son that's in his late teens, and, and a girl that's just a year older than my daughter. And they're really, you know, they're just it, they're going through a, a challenging time right now. And the daughter is um, the daughter we just found out is is cutting herself, and she's like 12 years old. And I mean, for me as like protective dad, like that just you know just breaks my heart. But the conversation came up in our missional community and the mom was there about some various psychological maladies and one of them that came up was cutting. And uh, it was so cool to be able to talk about it in terms of the gospel by saying, you know, the motivation for people that cut is they want blood to be let as a way of feeling a sense of peace. Like, they, if you talk to somebody that has cut themselves, then that it, there's like a, a sense of, ah, oh, like peace and shalom because they're letting blood out. And to be able to discuss the blood of Christ being let for us as a way of bringing us peace and shalom directly applies to a situation like that. And being able to have that conversation and watching her listening in the whole time was amazing. And when you end up just gossiping the gospel like that in very natural ways, and you're trying to find ways to just connect it to the gospel, it's ridiculously powerful. Like, people are blown away. And it doesn't take like you having some great, um, you know, creative mind. As I've already confessed, that is not where I'm not a creative guy, really. Um, but I think about the gospel a lot and people talk to me about the gospel a lot and I read about the gospel a lot. So it seems more natural to talk about it, but if all the pressure's on you and, um, you know, you need to move to spiritual conversations. Like we have this weird, let me say one more thing, if you don't mind, like we have this weird, um, sense that all evangelism is up to us. Like I have to meet the homeless person. I have to drive them to the social security office to get their social security stuff taken care of. I have to open my home to have the shower. I have to feed them. I have to take care of them. And I have to explain the gospel to them. And I've got to be with them. And I've got to be patient. And I've got to clothe them. And then I've got to make sure that I'm the spiritual midwife to bring them into the kingdom of God. Like all of that is put on our back. And we end up carrying around this tremendous burden that no one can bear. Like no single person can bear it. And here's the thing. You weren't supposed to bear it on your own. That's why God gave you community because he's gifted the community in ways where someone might be more hospitable and so they open their home. Someone might be more, um, I don't know, aggressive and uh, not fearful and more gregarious and so they're going to go out and talk to a homeless person. Someone might just be more generous and they have things that they like to give away but they're ridiculously shy. That's my wife. Some might really do a good job at being able to connect the gospel in conversation in all ways. And so that person's there. And when you're in community and you bring that person into your community, then all of a sudden the whole body is doing its job. And that is powerful and beautiful and so much easier. I think the last part totally resonates with me when we bring them into our community. And I think when I read that question, what I think people are struggling with is when I don't know somebody and I'm having a a conversation that's not of God and I bring God into it, it's going to be awkward. Hmm. But, you know, that old saying, people don't know what you care, what you know until they know what you care. When I'm out there uh, demonstrating the gospel, right, we know that the, the gospel is demonstrative and declarative. When I just declare it, it's awkward. But when I demonstrate the gospel, 
and, and find a platform to declare it, it's, it, it removes the awkwardness because then they know I really care about them. All right, we're going to call it tonight. It's just about 8.30. Um, thank you guys for being here. Let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll get out of here. Don't forget, please leave us more questions. We'll try to answer them uh, tomorrow night. But um, let me pray, and uh, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll Wednesday night. Oh. oh, yeah. Steve told me to tell of you. He's seen me, people. We need volunteers for uh, child care, and also we need food and help with the food and help with uh, teardown. Um, is there anything else? Jesus. Yeah, and I okay. And I just want to say thank you all. The last two nights have been great. The the food's been great. Unbelievable side dishes. I mean, it's just been really good. So thank you all. It's been great. And just encouragement. We're gonna hopefully have the same amount of people tomorrow. So if you're in East Simi East community, please show up a little bit early. Um, make a phone call. Let them know that you're gonna be coming. Let them know that you're gonna be bringing a side dish. And uh, show up early and let's all get together. It would be great to pray with you, too, before the event even begins. Mm-hmm. And pray for the night before people show up to eat. And it would be great to serve side by side and start doing some of this community, even sharing that gospel as we're talking. So let's pray as we go. Father God, we thank you for another amazing evening. Uh, Father, we pray tonight that uh, your word would go forth with power. And, Father, we got to hear the gospel. What a blessing that is. And got to think about the gospel and think on the gospel. And Jesus, you're amazing. We thank you for the life that you lived. We thank you that uh, you walked in a way that truly, truly should spur the way that we walk and live our lives. So we thank you for your example. We thank you that uh, you died on a cross for a people that truly didn't deserve it. That Jesus, you're the example of loving the unlovable. And I just pray, Father, that as we ask these questions that our heart, our hearts are truly pliable and understand that you call us, your people, your children to love in the same way. So please help us with that. Give us wisdom where it's needed. Give us discernment where it's needed. But most of all, give us faith where we're lacking. We love you so much and we do want to be good ambassadors of Christ. We want to be representatives that would truly bring your name, honor and glory. And we need your help in that. So please. Father, empower us by your spirit. We love you and we thank you that we're able to get together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great night.